Praise the Lord. Hi, my name is Marvin. I'll be reading from the Old Testament's Proverbs 25, chapter 25, verses 21 through 22. If your enemies are starving, feed them some bread. If they are thirsty, give them some water to drink. Look out for them. He's saying look out for them. By doing this, you will heap burning coals upon their head, and the Lord will reward you. Word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Hi, my name is Nate. The New Testament reading is found in Romans 12, 14 through 21. Bless people who harass you. Bless and don't curse them. Be happy with those who are happy and cry with those who are crying. Consider everyone as equal and don't think that you're better than anyone else. Instead, associate with people who have no status. Don't think that you're so smart. Don't pay back anyone for their evil actions with evil actions, but show respect for what everyone else believes is good. If possible, do the best of your ability. Live at peace with all people. Don't try to get revenge for yourselves, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. It is written, revenge belongs to me. I will pay it back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. By doing this, you will pile burning coals of fire upon his head. Don't be defeated by evil, but defeat evil with good. The word of the Lord. Good morning, church. My name is Jonathan. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in John 16. I have said these things to you so that you won't fall away. They will expel you from the synagogue. The time is coming when those who kill you will think that they are doing a service to God. They will do these things because they don't know the Father or me. I've said these things to you so that you will have peace in me. In the world you have distress, but be encouraged. I have conquered the world. The Gospel of the Lord. Remain standing as we pray. So, Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that your kingdom is arriving even now on earth as it is in heaven. We pray for the grace to live under Jesus as king and to live in this new kingdom even now. We pray that your word would change us and conform us to the image of your son, Jesus Christ, by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in his name. And everybody said, amen. amen. You may be seated. Some time ago, I had the privilege of visiting and praying for a gentleman uh, who is later in life. He's in his upper 80s, and as we were talking, getting to know one another, I asked him a question about his journey of faith and how he came to the Lord, and he said, you know, it happened for me when I was a really young man, and he said it was in his high school years. He said, someone, can you think about what decade this might have been in, you know, if he's in his late 80s now, when what the decade was when he was in his high school years. And he said, someone asked him, they said, hey, are you a Christian? And he said, he looked kind of puzzled. And he said, I looked at them and I said, well, I, I'm an American, aren't I? <laughs> and he said that the person explained to him that, no, 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 there, there's more to it than that, that, you know, there's a place of confessing faith and putting your trust in Jesus Christ. And we had a laugh about that and he's lived his life, you know, in obedience to Jesus. And as I left that place that day, I thought, boy, what a great picture of how things have changed. 
because now it is no longer the assumption that to uh, be a, a, a good American is the same as being a Christian. And not to say that that assumption was ever a good assumption. There's something dangerous about that, no doubt, and as he pointed out in his own testimony. But now we have the, circum- the situation where actually faith in our context is looked at with quite a bit of suspicion. And so if you were to say to someone you're a Christian, they would at the very least be suspicious and at the very most be hostile. They would say, oh no, not one of you. And whereas in previous decades, you you might have found that religion in general or Christianity in particular was viewed to be a plus and a good thing, and it was much harder to be someone who didn't believe, in our day, it's the opposite. It's actually much harder to be someone who does believe, that the default position has changed. The default position is skepticism and maybe even hostility. And so when we think about that, we say, well, how are we supposed to live as Christians in a world that is hostile to us? A world that looks at us and says, oh no, religion is harmful, religion is dangerous, religion, as some of those well-known atheists have written about and have said, religion is the great uh, cause of all the ills in the world. And so how do we live as people of faith, not just generally, but specifically as Christians within this environment? The tendency for us as human beings, whenever we perceive a threat, is to either fight, and do, we respond with either fight or flight, right? To say, okay, well, I'll stand up to this. I'll take back our country. We need to take back our culture. We need to make God, uh, bring God back in America again. And usually what we mean is, let's rewind the clock and let's take things back. Forgetting that, of course, while a previous decade might have been better in some ways or for some people... It was actually worse for others, particularly minority groups and all of that. And so one response is to say, well, let's fight this. Let's stand against this. And another response is to say, you know what? There's no unscrambling this egg. There's no turning back the clock, whatever metaphor you like. So let's just hide out in our little Christian uh, enclaves. Let's just uh, be in our little communes and let's, let's do all of our lives together and hang out at Christian coffee shops where we can drink Jesus mochas at holy grounds and exchange new, new testaments for fresh breath after coffee. And let's just do our thing and be okay and hang out till Jesus comes. Now, obviously, by your laughter, we know neither of those options are quite right. And I admit I'm caricaturing both extremes. We know we can't end up in one of those two places, but the the middle is much messier, isn't it? It's much more difficult to discern this because, listen, aren't there times where Christians need to be engaged in the public square and serve in the political arena or in other positions of influence for the sake of, for the good of the whole society? Yes. If Christians exit all of those places, that's not a good thing, right? And I happen to be of the opinion that One of the particularly easy lenses to use for this is to say, how can Christians use our influence in the public square for the sake of the vulnerable? That one is at least a little bit easier to say, okay, how can we do... So when Christians say, let's speak for the unborn, or let's make sure we find ways of undoing trafficking, or let's find ways where laws are tilted or tipped in the wrong way, where it favors the powerful or the, or the corrupt, how can we fix some of these things? Look, those are, those are maybe a little easier to discern how to engage. But there's lots of other things that are trickier. Next week, we'll get to Romans 13, where we'll talk about the role of authority and government and how does this work? What can it be at its best? But today, we're talking about a different question, more of the question of how we as Christians are to live our everyday life, 
our marketplace lives, our caring for children and, and, and living in the education spheres or the business spheres. How, how, do, how do we live in these spaces when it feels like things are uh, 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 calibrated in a way that is hostile to us, a way that is maybe skeptical at the least or hostile at the worst? The good news in all of this is that the church has been here before. The good news in all of this is that we don't have to sit around and say, oh my goodness, Christianity has never faced these challenges. Indeed, the church around the world is facing much greater challenges, even right now. The church in portions in the Middle East and Asia and the global south are facing far more serious opposition than, than the church in America. So in one sense, this should give us hope. Okay, this is, we were built for this. Our community, our faith was built for this. It was built for tough times. It was built for And so when we think about even the church in Rome, this is a particularly interesting context. When Paul's writing this letter to the church in Rome, there is an outright persecution yet. In fact, that's a few decades away where Christians are going to be dragged off to the, to the gladiator arenas and persecute and mass. That's not happening yet when Paul's writing this letter. There's rather, there's just a general tone of hostility, skepticism, even mocking, a mocking sort of attitude towards Christians. Many in Rome looked at these Christians and thought, these are fools. These are people who claim that a man was raised from the dead and they worship a God, but we can't even see him. He's invisible. In a strange twist of linguistic irony, the the pagan Romans thought Christians were atheists. They called them atheists because they served an invisible God. And so there was this sort of pejorative attitude. And Paul says this in Romans 12. We've come to the point in the letter where Paul is now giving some very specific pastoral instructions, right? He's done a lot of theological heavy lifting. And now he says, now this is what this means for us. And so the first part of Romans 12, Paul says, in view of God's mercies, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. So a couple weeks ago, we talked about how our response, empowered by grace, is to live out a faithful obedience to King Jesus. And then last week, the middle of chapter 12, we talked about how Paul says, and this is how this community is to live. This is a new kind of community. This is a new kind of society. The church, you guys operate under a different king. And so there's no way around the the distinction between the church and those who are not part of the church. I know there are some... Some of my friends in other parts of the country have this desire to erase all lines of distinction between Christians and non-Christians, between those who believe in in Jesus and those who don't. Hey, let's just not create this us and them thing. Let's just all emphasize some sort of thing that we have in common and move towards a more universal spirituality. But I'm sorry, the New Testament doesn't give us that option. Right? Paul wants us to know, look, the church is a particular kind of community formed around the good news that Jesus is king. So we don't get around the hard edges of division between the church and the world. There is a line of demarcation. It's uncomfortable to say it, but it's true. But then Paul goes on, and the, the last part of Romans 12 is Paul saying, and yet there is a way of living in a hostile world that is not obnoxious. There is a way of living in a hostile world that doesn't create more opportunities for offensiveness. In other words, the gospel itself is radically confrontational. It calls us to repent and embrace a new king. So listen, the gospel itself has the edges of of confrontation. You don't need to add to it with your own obnoxious behavior. 
right? And so this whole last part of Romans 12 is Paul saying, there is a way, you know, to live in this community while, to live in this society while operating as a different kind of community. And so verse 14 begins this section where he talks about it, but I think the key verse in this whole section, I think, is verse 18. Because in verse 18, Paul says, if possible, to the best of your ability, live at peace with all people. I think that's the heart of it. And he starts out by saying a few things about how, and then he finishes up with a few more things about how. But I think right in the center of this little section is this phrase, as far as it's possible, to the best of your ability, live at peace with all people. Don't create more strife than necessary. Don't create more divisions that necessary. We already serve a Jesus who said he came to bring a sword, right? The, the, the call to follow King Jesus is a challenging call. You don't have to add to it by living in a way that creates tension with the world around us. So how? How do we do this? This morning I'd like to offer us three things, three things from this text that I think can help us live as Christians under the kingship of Jesus, not compromising our obedience to King Jesus, and yet in a way that, that is at peace with the world around us. That may not sound like something that's possible, but let me offer you some thoughts. Number one, the first thing I think Paul tells us to do is to look for opportunities to show solidarity. Look for opportunities to show solidarity. So verse 15, Paul says, be happy with those who are happy and cry with those who are crying. Some of you will have memorized the more familiar uh, translation of this. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now, there is a chance that these verses are meant to refer to the church, but just the flow of these verses, it gives the indication that by context, Paul's talking about how we're supposed to show solidarity with the wider community, with the world around us. In other words, there are places where we can join in and show solidarity with people outside the church. How? Paul says, okay, for starters, find a place where people are happy about something and then go rain on their parade. No, he doesn't say that, right? I mean, we are the worst Christians. Everybody's talking about something, or they're happy about some event, and some celebration, or some party, and Christians go, yeah, well, you know, I don't, I don't agree with that. Or they find something, do you know what's wrong about that movie? Or do you know what I don't like about that song? And you just find some way to rain on every parade, to destroy every parade. And Paul's like, would you just knock it off? Like, if people are rejoicing, go ahead and join the party. Now, take that with a little grain of salt, you know. Some of you are like, all right, he said it. (laughs) Be be careful now. Look for places where people are rejoicing and rejoice with them. Celebrate with them. Encourage it. This is not the time to offer your your 95 theses on something, you know. I I think about, you know, um, here in our community, Colorado Springs, there are many occasions for great joy. I think about the, 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 the news stories whenever a serviceman or woman is returning from deployment and the, the scenes of, at the Colorado Springs airport of welcoming people home. Rejoice with that. A father is coming home. A mother is coming home. A, a, a son or a daughter is coming home. Rejoice with that. Air Force Academy graduation, the flyover, you know. I, we're so cynical sometimes. I'm around people where they watch that and they're like, oh, There's America flexing its muscles, you know. It's like, you know, or you could rejoice that some really wonderful young people have put in some sacrificial time and are now graduating. Rejoice with those who rejoice, right? 
there's a way of joining this. There's a way of joining the party. And then, and then he says, but weep with those who weep. Cry with those who cry. There's a way of entering into someone else's sorrow. Now, this is interesting. Cry with those who are crying. Not cry because you think it's upsetting too. Now, I say this because most of the time when we hear an outcry or a lament about anything, our first response is to do what? Is to judge it by our own frame of reference. And so we look at that and say, what? What are they complaining about? There's nothing wrong. There's no injustice. There's no oppression. What these babies... Is that what Paul says to do? When you see people crying because they've been hurt, call them babies. Make fun of them for needing safe spaces. Or does he say, maybe you should enter into their pain. Maybe you should find find out the reason why they're crying. Can I tell you just honestly what I think the greatest challenge is in our own day? We have lost the ability to see people anymore. Everything is an issue, and then every issue is viewed through the lens of our own partisan politics. Look, our politics are going to be different. We're going to arrive at different conclusions. I hope that we have many different points of view in our congregation. My challenge to us is, is it possible to see a social issue through someone else's lens? Or do we have to only say, listen, I've heard, I know exactly what's going on here. I'll tell you what's happening, da 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 And you've got all your talking points memorized because you've just been listening to the radio or your cable news network. Some of you, your tribe is CNN. Your others of you, your tribe is Fox News, whatever it is. And you've got your talking points. So any social issue, you've squeezed it through the prism of partisan politics. And do you know what's happened as a result? We've lost our ability to have empathy. And when you lose the ability to have empathy, how can you show solidarity? How can you rejoice with those who rejoice if you're like, well, it's not good news to me. Okay, but is it good news for somebody else? Can you rejoice with them? Or you've lost your ability to weep with those who weep because you're like, well, I I think that's not even really a thing. I'm like, okay. But is it possible that someone else might be experiencing a different reality? Is it possible, you guys, to set aside the lens of partisan play and to say, how can I sit in someone else's seats? How can I stand in someone else's shoes? How can I look for places to show solidarity even beyond our normal community? This is a big one for Christians. It's a big one for Christians to say, I need to be able to move beyond my place. Recently, I was so moved by the stories on Facebook and on Twitter with the hashtag MeToo. The stories of women enduring harassment and assault and worse, just heartbreaking stories. And I read some from, from, some from within our own church sharing it. And, and it's heartbreaking and you weep with those who weep. And then someone told me recently, said, yeah, I tried to share a story and I got scolded by another Christian for giving in to that feminist liberal agenda. I thought, no. We're done for if this is it. If everything, it's no longer a person with a story, it's an issue that's attached to an agenda. How do we have solidarity anymore? We can't. We can't. And the challenge to the church is to say, is it possible for you not to squeeze everything through the lens of issues and agendas 
and to say, this is a human being with a story. And I need to rejoice with them or I need to weep with them. Paul says, you don't have to live in the world in a way that refuses solidarity with those beyond the community of faith. But you know what it requires? It requires the second thing. Live from a place of humility. Live from a place of humility. Verse 16, Paul says, Consider everyone as equal and don't think that you're better than anyone else. Instead, associate with people who have no status. Don't think that you're so smart. I like this common English Bible translation because it puts it right down on the bottom. This is not a verse where you have to look at that and say, Wow, that is so puzzling. I wonder what the original Greek says. When you read this verse and you're like, that's pretty clear. (laughs) Don't be a smarty pants. Don't view yourself as superior. Take a moment and say, you know, where am I missing this? You know, one of the great things that the science of emotion has taught us is that actually feelings are not things to be thrown away. Feelings are important clues about what's actually really going on in our heart. And so emotions help us understand our perceptions. So if you feel a particular emotion, it's likely because you have a particular view or or perception of the world. So if someone keeps getting on your nerves or some issue or some topic keeps aggravating you and you let those emotions be a clue that says, you know what, I kind of think that I'm smarter than those people. That's why I get so annoyed with them. And fill in the blank. Conservatives are mad at liberals, liberals are mad at conservatives, and millennials are mad at whatever. I mean, it's just on and on it goes. And it's like, listen, people, stop for a minute. Let your emotion of aggravation be a clue into saying, is my perception coming from a superiority place? Is my perception coming from a place of of looking down on someone else? I'll never forget, some time ago, I was getting ready to meet a person, and I knew right away that I was going to disagree with them. I knew it. And in fact, all through the drive there, I was like prepping my speech. Have you, I know you've probably never done that. I was having the imaginary conversation in my head. And I was like, they're going to say this, and then I'm going to say that. And then and it was, I was getting fired up, you know. And then I paused before the meeting, and I just prayed, because that's what you're supposed to do, you know. I said, Lord, give me grace. Basically, I was saying, Lord, help them see how right I am, you know. And right away, I felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit say, no, no, don't pray for grace. Pray for humility, because I always give grace to the humble. I know. I'm telling you, sometimes sometimes the Holy Spirit gets you. I'm like, Lord, give me grace. I sound so pious, you know. Help them to see, help them to give up their foolish ways and see the wisdom of my argument, you know. And instead God is like, nah, I'd rather you pray for humility because I always give grace to the humble. And the, 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 the humble approach to that conversation changed the whole nature of it. It didn't become an argument. It didn't become a fight. And so when you live from a place of humility, it makes possible the third thing, love radically. Love radically. Listen to, this is where Paul really amps up. He starts out the section in verse 14 saying, bless people who harass you, bless and don't curse them. And then you skip all the way down to verse 17. He comes back to this theme. He says, don't pay back anyone for their evil actions with evil actions, but show respect for what everyone else believes is good. Now listen to this. Show respect for what other people believe is good. No, because they're wrong. You know, it's like the guy who said, listen, I'd agree with you, but then we'd both be wrong. You know, 
Come on, you wait for it. Wait for it. Okay, there it is. I, I would agree with you, but then we'd both be No, Paul says, look, find a way to show respect for what everyone else believes is good. See, here's the thing. In Protestant theology, there's such a thing called common grace. This belief that God has made his grace common to everyone, like the rain that falls on the just and on the unjust. So, so listen, even while we'll disagree about Jesus, there's a few things that we're going to find some, we, there's some things that we all believe are right. Look for those places, Paul says. Show respect, for find, find ways. But then that, that's not really the point of this passage because he goes on in verse 19. He says, don't try to revenge for yourselves, to get revenge for yourselves, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. It is written, revenge belongs to me, and I will pay it back, says the Lord. Now, this is the stuff we've forgotten is actually in the Bible. This is the stuff where we're like, oh, no, I thought Jesus was like the dude in the paintings who's holding the lamb, you know, he's so sweet, was probably a killer musician, but... Well, I, here's the New Testament saying Jesus will be the one to execute vengeance. Like, whoa, that's heavy, man. I thought Christians were peace-loving people because Jesus was the first hippie and, you know. Like, no, 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 listen. Actually, the refusal to retaliate is rooted in a trust in God's justice. The refusal to retaliate is rooted in the trust in God's justice. See, listen, some of, you, some of us have it wrong. Some of us think that the refusal to retaliate is because we are all like some version of a Buddhist or a Hindu that thinks, oh, don't harm a fly, you may come back as a fly, or don't mess with the karma of the universe, just, just, just you know, live at peace with all things. That's not the Christian way of talking about peacemaking. The Christian way of talking about peacemaking is, is, is this, don't retaliate because you're going to make things worse. But if you trust vengeance to God, then God alone is righteous, and God alone is just, and God alone will execute judgment and justice for all people. God alone. Now listen, we we tremble a little bit when we say that because we're like, I don't know, are you saying angry God or whatever? You don't have to insert any of those things. You just have to hold true that God is a God of justice. And he's the only one who can execute justice absolutely perfectly. Now, does that mean that human institutions shouldn't try to hold justice? Of course not. Next week when we talk about Romans 13, we'll talk about ordained institutions that can carry out God's justice. We'll talk about that next week. But for today, what Paul is saying is don't operate with retaliation. Don't operate with revenge. Don't operate with vigilante justice because that's not how it works. The creation, the Croatian creation, the Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf, who grew up around the violence in the Balkan region, argued that if we did not have confidence in a God of justice, then we will take retribution in our own hands. If we did not have confidence in a God of justice, we will be tempted to take matter. We have the, 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 the tape that plays in our head that says, if I don't, it won't. But actually what the scriptures say is, don't, because God will. God will take vengeance. God will execute this. 
And in an ultimate sense, there's a scene in the book of Revelation where the martyrs are crying out, how long, O Lord? Think of this, in heaven, in the presence of God. Why? Because they know that heaven is not the final vindication of justice. Judgment and resurrection are. Right? The martyrs know. Look, we're at they could. The Bible doesn't give us the picture of martyrs who say, wow, that was awful, but hey, oh well, it's all good. Hashtag no worries. The Bible gives us a picture of a God who cares so much about justice that he will deal with it ultimately, fully, finally, and perfectly. And you might even say with the perfect way of doing justice and mercy. We don't know how to get that quite right, but God does. And so sometimes, just as a little side note, sometimes I'll ask people, young people who are struggling with faith, they'll say, I don't know if I, have to, if I can believe in all this hell stuff and judgment of God stuff and all this stuff. And I'll say, look, really the, the main thing that Scripture asks of you, or that the gospel asks of you is, do you trust Jesus to be the judge of the nations? Do you trust Jesus to be the judge? And that's really the question, isn't it? Not, I've figured out who's going to hell, and I've figured out who's going to pay, and that person, and that... The, the real question is, will you give it over to Jesus? Will you trust Jesus as the judge? But then the passage goes on, verse 20, instead, instead of retaliation. So on the one hand, it's, a, it's a, a prohibition. Don't engage in retaliation and revenge. Let God. On the other hand, there's an encouragement. Instead, do what? Instead, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. I mean, this is crazy talk. What? Excuse me? By doing this, you'll, you'll pile burning coals of fire upon his head. Paul's quoting now from Proverbs. And, and there's different you know, discussion about, from commentators about what this uh, idiomatic expression means. And most likely, the, the best explanation is it means you'll lead them to a place of remorse. The burning coals on their head is not like a gotcha you know, it, it, it's more of a, you'll lead them to the place of remorse. That they'll realize, oh, that really wasn't good, was it? Don't be defeated by evil, but defeat evil with good. This kind of radical love is actually a cross-shaped love. Here's what I mean by this. You would have to look really hard and really deep in Greek literature and Greek mythology and Roman letters to try to find something like this, but I'm not sure you can find it. You won't find in the Greek mythologies a great, that great story of Hercules, who when he met his enemy, he fed him. You won't find it. You'll find stories of them slaughtering their enemies and being praised for it. Where does this come from? Jesus. Jesus. This kind of love doesn't emerge from Athens or Rome. This kind of love emanates from Golgotha, where Jesus, the Son of God, took upon himself the sin of the world and said, Father, forgive them. And when he was struck, did not strike back. This kind of radical love is how we live in the world. This kind of radical love. I asked earlier this week on Facebook for stories from some of you. I said, tell me about what this looks like. 
Because this would be an easy sermon for you to say, oh, well, that's cute, but you're a pastor. You know, it's true. I never have to do with forgiving, deal with forgiving people, anything like that. Never have to deal with that. But I'm curious how this, what this looks like on the front lines, where you live, in your places of work, school, neighborhoods. And a couple of the stories in particular were just really moving. One guy said to me, he said, I work in a construction site, and he said, honestly, every day I go to work, and it's on-the-job insults from morning to night. Insults, mocking words, they know I'm a Christian, so they look for every opportunity to perfect, purposely offend me. It's like, it's kind of the, comes with the deal. And he's like, and I have to just be like, not retaliate, not strike back, not curse back, not mock them back. I know you are, but what am I? Another congregant who's a business owner of a local business in, in town said, he wrote to me, he said, we've been regularly stolen from, slandered, lied about, screamed at, accused, threatened, and cheated. That is a list right there. And he said, time and time again, I look to the Lord to find out how to respond, which is a great practice, isn't it? And he says, time and time again, the Lord says to me, let me get vengeance for you. And then he says, the Lord reminds me, the whole world has held against these people their failures and will we'll hold it against them all their lives. But the Lord said, you can treat them differently. Now, this isn't a copy and paste thing like, okay, everybody should, yeah. but the, the point is the discernment in this. Because aren't there instances when we say, you know what? They're reacting out of their own place of pain or failure, and if I hold it against... I'll be no different than anybody else in their life. Everybody has said, you dirty, rotten, you dirty, lousy, miserable, and I'll just be another one of those voices. Another congregant from New Life Downtown shared a story with me this week. He comes from, we came from a Muslim family and we, I mean, he converted to Christianity. His parents disowned him and pretty harshly so. with nothing to do. They live in America have nothing to do with you. And then after years of him trying to reach out, and they kept saying, no, 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 no. His mother got sick with cancer. And he moved to the city where she lived so that he could take care of her. Gave up everything, moved to be near her. And cared for her in, in the last moments of her life with cancer. And then now, years after that, after her death, there's been this softening of the heart of his father now to him. Who does that? Who goes to a parent that disowns you and cares for them in their old age? Who does that? The people who follow Jesus do that. Who takes the employees that cheat them and slander them and find a way to bless them. Who does that? The people who follow Jesus do that. It's a radical kind of love that is shaped by the cross. But here's the thing. It's shaped by the cross because we understand that God defeated evil by His loving and sacrificial death on the cross. Sometimes we, you know, we love victory, we love strength, we love overcoming. Like, oh, tell me this story about how we have victory in Jesus' name. 
I'll tell you the story of how we have victory in Jesus' name, but you're not going to like how that victory comes about. (laughs) Because we're the people of the cross. We're the people who believe that victory comes not by killing your enemies, but by dying for them. Oh, come on. See, we take these Christian words, victory, triumph, strength, the champion, you know, all of this stuff, and then we fill it with ideas and imagery from the world instead of from the Jesus story. And so all of a sudden, Jesus is like, you know, Achilles or something, you know, or, 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 or this, this great warrior that defeats everybody. Like, no, actually, the story of Jesus is the, the, the powers of evil conspired to kill the Son of God, and he let them. Like, I'm sorry? What? Because he knew that in dying, he would drain the poison out of evil. He would take all the sting out of death. And when the Father raised Jesus from the dead, it was an announcement to the world. Resurrection is the vindication of Christ-like love. Resurrection is God's announcement to the world that this is the kind of love that wins in the end. This is the kind of love that triumphs over all. See, here's the thing. We read the phrase in 1 Corinthians 13, and it says, love conquers all. And we think, oh, what a great slogan. Let's put that on ships, and let's tattoo that on our arms, and let's make this like our great banner in this, in this postmodern world of love conquers all. And we fill in the word love with all of our meanings of it, mushy, sentimental, uh, um, tolerance, and acceptance. That is not what the scriptures are talking about. When Paul says love conquers all, he doesn't mean our sentimentality will conquer all or our mushy-gushy tolerance and acceptance will conquer all. He says the kind of love that gives and gives and gives even unto death for the good of others, that is the kind of love that conquers all. It's the Jesus kind of love. It's the Jesus kind of love. And oh, by the way, it may not seem, this side of eternity, it may not seem like that kind of love wins at all. Cross-reference the martyrs. It may not seem, you might seem like, well, wow, what a bunch of fools. They did this, they did this, they did this. I don't know. How'd that work out? Not very well. And God's saying, hang on, it's not over yet. It's not over yet. The lamb who was slain gets the last word. And his word is the word of life. The Father who raised the Son from the dead gets the final say, and His Word is the Word of resurrection. His Word is the Word to all of the ones who have given sacrificially and loved sacrificially and not seen the world change and not seen millions come to Jesus, but they loved anyway and forgave anyway and were generous anyway. Those people in the end one day will hear the words of the Lord say, well done. You win. And all the grabbing, selfish, violent, hateful path finally goes to destruction. And this path ends in life. How do we live in a world that is hostile? Look for opportunities to show solidarity. Live from a place of humility. And love radically with a cross-shaped Jesus kind of love. Would you bow your heads this morning?
Some of you are weary in this. I know it. I know so many of you have given your life and your time to live this way, and it's exhausting and feels impossible. I know. And truly, without the power of the Holy Spirit, it is impossible. It is impossible. And so I'm praying this morning that the Holy Spirit would make His strength perfect in your weakness, would make His grace to be sufficient to supply all of your needs according to His riches and glory. Others of you, you know it's there and you're trying to ignore it, but the Holy Spirit wants to drain some of the animosity out of your heart wants to just open up the valve and let that stuff out. Just let it out. Man, you're carrying around some anger against the world and against the culture and against this and that. The Holy Spirit's saying to you, would you humble yourselves today? Let that out. That stuff will destroy you. It's going to drag you into a cycle of retaliation and revenge. Yeah, just So let the Holy Spirit cleanse that from you, convict you of that. To say, hey, you, you, you're, you're, not, you're, you're not showing any empathy. Or, or you could show more empathy. Or, there's a way that the Holy Spirit wants to help you stand in someone else's shoes show some solidarity that just as Jesus entered into our world we might be able to enter into somebody else's world so we pray a prayer of confession this morning because we all need the grace of God we never outgrow our need for the grace of God Pray these words with me.